You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On January 29th, the eve of President Trump's first State of the Union address, the Washington Post brought together influential lawmakers, political operatives, and plugged-in analysts to preview the president's speech and look ahead to the coming legislative year. In this segment, White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway talks with Washington Post White House Bureau Chief Phil Rucker about what to expect from the president's State of the Union address. She also weighs in on the Russia investigation, as well as her views of the Me Too movement. Let's listen. Hi, everybody. Thank you for being here. And uh, excuse my appearance, I fell uh, and broke my arm <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, so I'm just getting by here. But we're eager to talk with uh, Kellyanne Conway, counselor to the president at the White House, and a key advisor uh, in helping shape the president's policies and his message. And uh, we're going to start by talking about the State of the Union tomorrow night, uh, a big speech. And um, you know, a year ago, the president gave his first speech to a joint address to Congress. He talked about American renewal, and he got pretty good reviews. Uh, it went pretty well, and it lasted a short while because uh, in the days that followed, there were a number of controversies, including some uh, by him that sort of created a more polarized environment on the Hill. And I'm wondering, looking to the speech tomorrow night, what can the president do to set that bipartisan tone, to try to achieve those deals uh, that he wants with Democrats in Congress without getting sort of kicked off the script, so to speak. Well, Phil, first of all, thank you for having me. Thanks to the Washington Post and any other sponsors. We appreciate uh, the platform today. The president is working on a bipartisan, forward-looking speech that's positive in tone and content. And what that really means is, when working on this speech, it's a reflection on the past year's accomplishments, but also those accomplishments not as just checking a box, a to-do list, but really, what is the nexus between what has happened and your own life, or your own business, or your own aspirations? And then, how is that a framework for working together in 2018? I would point out a few things. They're pretty recent. One is, about two, three weeks ago now, the president held forth for 55 minutes, uninterrupted, undeterred, unscripted, with a bipartisan, bicameral group of legislators in the cabinet room. It was quite unexpected, I think, mainly by um, the media, the press pool who were covering it, and by all accounts, we're very pleased to have that kind of transparency and live, again, unfiltered and unscripted exchange uh, between the president and the legislators. Uh, that's good for transparency, accountability, democracy, really, and it's that kind of conversation we need to keep having. That particular issue was about, that particular meeting was about immigration, and you see an openness and a flexibility by this president very recently on the DACA recipients, the DREAMers, um, he will address that tomorrow in his speech. Immigration will want to be one of the major five or six points covered. And I would also go back to August 21st, when the president came thereabouts came out with his um, Afghani policy speech, his policy speech mm -hmm. about Afghanistan, um, a little bit of a diversion from where he was during the campaign, having consulted with those on the ground and his generals and his national security team. I know you wrote about it at the time and were criticized um, for saying, it's a new president, new new President Trump on Afghanistan, new strategy, but indeed it was. So I'd just like to show those as examples of openness and flexibility. It will be bipartisan in tone and content because that's the only way to function 
in this town and as a democracy. Uh, we saw during the government shutdown, very unfortunate, that folks wanted the government shut down, but you saw to reopen the government, you literally needed 60 votes, so yeah. you needed bipartisan cooperation. We were very happy that many Democrats came around, bucked their party's leadership, and voted to reopen the government a week ago. Yeah, and Kellyanne, you talked about immigration, which is going to come up in the speech tomorrow. The White House has a framework uh, that's been previewed in the last couple of days that does include uh, the, the, something for the Dreamers, the legal status for the Dreamers. Is that a red line for the president? Is he committed to seeing some sort of legal status for uh, the hundreds of thousands of kids who are here uh, without documentation? The president has said that. And in fact, uh, as you saw, the framework currently includes resolution for 1.8 million. So it would include those who never availed themselves of that after President Obama mm -hmm. um, took action in 2012. So it actually anticipates and includes those who never took the action in addition to the roughly seven or 800,000 who did. So that is there, but also there's $25 billion for enhanced security at the border. Um, we are a nation, the president will talk about how a sovereign nation must have physical borders, that we as a nation have spent billions of dollars over many decades helping other countries secure their borders and protect their sovereignty. And he believes and has successfully won on and is governing on enhancing uh, security at the border. That includes the wall and other security measures, but that also I would say that is his red line. He's always made that very clear. But again, I think it's just a, it's a great symbol of how cooperation and discussion can be had on the same issue with two very divergent priorities. I think if you look at the conversation in the past several months, if not year, when the Democrats talk about immigration, they basically have been talking about the Dreamers, the DACA recipients. This president put out a 70-point plan a few months ago. You can all go and read it. But he talks about merit-based immigration. He talks about an end to chain migration. He talks about an end to the visa lottery system, obviously border security, and now uh, DACA recipients. Yeah, as his political counselor, how do you help him manage and, and navigate the currents in, in the Republican base right now? Uh, Breitbart has taken to calling him Amnesty Don because of this immigration framework. How, do you, how does he manage uh, being compassionate with the Dreamers and coming up with some sort of legal status for them uh, while satisfying his base that, that is very hard line on immigration? That is not a conversation we have very frequently, Phil, for a very simple reason. He's the president of all Americans, including the millions who didn't vote for him. That's something he said on November 9th, um, in the wee hours of November 9th, on election day plus. Um, election day plus, that's right, the speech. Um, and he changed that, he added that. When we were up in the residence, he added that, that. And he said it at the Hilton. He said, I'm the president for, of all Americans, even those who didn't support me, and there are more than a few of you, I believe were his words or something they're about. And you have to take that very seriously as president because it's just like with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. So people were lied to that it couldn't pass, and if it did, it would only help the wealthy. Mm -hmm. And people now see it's helping folks who it's helping um, upwards of 3 million people already, 274 companies, employers have taken action as of this morning was the last count I saw. And you're talking about a direct investment in your workplaces, your workforces, raises, obviously bonuses, but also capital investments in skills training and education for your employees, um, the, the broader communities being invested in, and even some benefits that have long been seen as the province of, of the other party. I think that's ridiculous because everybody thinks about childcare and everybody thinks about um, wellness of their employees. But you've got many companies, many job, job creators, now employers, taking action 
uh, because of this tax cut, and they're saying that, they're saying because of the tax cut, we are doing X, Y, and Z. There are plenty of people there who are going to benefit who don't support the president or quote part of his base. The president's base is the entire country because he's president of the United States. And I'll give you the best example. I have many good examples because in addition to working on the big issues of the day like tax reform, infrastructure, immigration, I tend to have some things in my portfolio that I can, like legitimately, I can legitimately refer to though as nonpartisan issues in search of bipartisan solutions. And when I go around the country, meeting with grieving families or talking to law enforcement officers or health professionals or faith-based community um, leaders, I, I don't ask them, how did you vote? Are you registered? You just can't care yeah. when, you're, when you're serving the country. And I do think people who feel that way are the ones who should serve in government. Well, today's, uh, today's a busy news day, as every day is <laughs> has been for the last year. Uh, the deputy uh, director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, has uh, stepped down. He's going to be uh, formally retiring in a couple of months, but he stepped down immediately from his position. And I'm wondering, is the president celebrating? I mean, he, he, President Trump had so much to say about McCabe over the last few months in his tweets and other comments criticizing his leadership of the FBI. And I'm, I'm curious how the White House is responding to that. I've, I've not personally seen the president react one way or the other. I know our press secretary, Sarah Sanders, on my way over here, was saying during her briefing um, in, the, mm -hmm. in the press briefing room, Phil, that uh, the White House had nothing to do with that decision and that you have to re be, refer your questions to, I guess, Mr. McCabe and the FBI. Yeah, but the president had criticized his uh, his leadership personally at the. At I've the also FBI. read in the paper, maybe even the Washington Post, you probably that, did. or your Twitter feed, <laughs> that uh, Mr. McCabe had planned on retiring. Yeah. At some point, so I would again. It's not a surprise move. News. It's not a surprise move, I guess, if you read the Washington Post or Phil's Twitter feed, as I do. Uh, we've seen it before, but in any event, that's what uh, Sarah Sanders has said, and and that is, that is what um, is occurring right now as the news is breaking. Yeah, well, another story uh, today is that the House Intelligence Committee has put together a report, uh, a memo rather, suggesting that the FBI may have relied on politically motivated or questionable sources to justify uh, one of those early requests for secret surveillance warrant uh, in the Russia investigation. And, you know, the, this is obviously something the House Committee is going to have to decide in the next couple of hours, but should that memo be publicly released? Do you think the public deserves a right to see it? And do you think it should necessitate any further changes uh, in the leadership of the FBI and the DOJ? So when it comes to the FBI, let me make very clear, the president went to Quantico, I believe it was in December, and he has great respect, as he has said, for the rank and file. I think there are about 25,000 or so employees yeah. at the FBI. You're talking about a few people who are in charge of investigation and what we see that's been made public. I don't have any special knowledge, obviously, on that. We see what's been made public. Some, some very disturbing uh, statements about the now president. Um, we expect people have political points of view. They support who they support in the ballot box. Some of them gave money. One, at least one attended um, the president's political opponent's victory party uh, on election night, non-victory party, I suppose. But but uh, that, that aside, uh, we, we believe in transparency and accountability. So mm -hmm. this president would err on the side of transparency. And I, I hope, Phil, so would the legion of people, including in the media, who have been covering Russia and the investigation for over a year now. Yeah. And the president has made very clear that there's no collusion. There's, there's absolutely no collusion. He calls it a hoax, um, an excuse for 
losing an election, but more importantly, it's the transparency and accountability piece of this, that if those who are in charge of this memo, and I've not seen it, obviously, those who are in charge of that feel that it is ready to be released to the public, I'm not sure what would need to be redacted or not, then they should make that decision. Mm -hmm. And to pick up on that point, does the president think that, that uh, the messages that you're talking about, is that evidence that the law enforcement community was working against his campaign? Well, the law or, enforcement or trying community to is a very from... large group of people. We should never generalize as such. And as I say, it's what, what's been revealed now mm -hmm. after the fact, and ironically, I guess through the course of an investigation that was really targeted at him and his campaign, of uh, which I was the manager for the winning part, and I can tell you that the idea that I would ever have to go um, to Moscow rather than Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, or McComb County, Michigan, to help guide the campaign um, is foolish, and I don't know why anybody would think otherwise. So it, it's meaning think that you would have to do that otherwise. But on this on this particular on this particular discrete matter, yeah. let's let the committees decide what they think is best based on what they know. This is a president who's talked about a pro prosperity, security, transparency, and accountability being his three top priorities, and he will talk about those tomorrow night in the State of the Union. In fact, he'll talk about a safe, strong, proud America. And I think the word proud is very important, too, because whether it's this president try telling the country to dignify all career types, to have invested millions of dollars through the Department of Labor into skills training so that we are not, as a nation, telling everybody, you must go to a four-year college, you must get a degree, a four-year college degree, where we hear from employers and governors from both sides of the aisle all the time that there's a labor shortage supply, with carpenters, welders. Um, the folks I grew up with in South Jersey, I grew up outside of Camden and Philadelphia, most people I graduated with went for a skill certificate and were able to support themselves the next day. Uh, practically. And so this is somebody who's trying to say to America, be proud regardless of what your, your choice of career or yeah. job is. Um, be, we, we want to find things that bind us together as a nation. And, and he will talk about that in tomorrow's State of the Union. Yeah, and um, you know he's, he, he probably, I assume, is not going to talk about the Russia investigation in the State of the Union address, but that's the shadow that sort of hangs over the work he's doing as president. And Sarah Sanders said today at the press briefing, uh, it's about time everybody wash Russia fever out of their systems. So there's a real desire to move past that. And But the president himself last week said he was looking forward uh, to testifying under oath with Robert Mueller, uh, if indeed he's asked. And I'm wondering, as, as one of his advisors, considering uh, his history and his past during his, his time as a businessman of exaggerating details and saying things that are not true, and there was this one uh, deposition that he gave in 2007 where he had 30 misstatements, do you worry at all that he could be putting himself in a position where he might perjure himself? The question of whether or not the president testifies um, in Mr. Mueller's investigation really is a question for his attorneys, of which I'm not yeah. one. I'm a fully recovered attorney. I'm not his attorney. And uh, I know that Mr. Dowd, one of his attorneys, did then say that he has not decided whether the president will testify, and he'll let everyone know when that decision is made. I know his other t attorney, Mr. Cobb, also said publicly that um, that decision will be made at, at another time. Mm -hmm. but. Uh, we, we've also just said from the beginning, and I'll repeat it here today, that the president has said, the White House has said, we've all said that everyone is cooperating, that we've turned over 
loads of documents. Um, people have testified for many hours. And so everybody is complying and cooperating. But when my colleague Sarah Sanders says today, it's time to wash Russia fever out of your system, I think we're just going back to a lot of the promises that were made that this presidency won't last, you will find collusion, the election will be nullified. It's, we were promised that we're going to see those 70,000 votes in those three states that, uh, that Donald Trump won as president fairly and squarely, that somehow you're going to see that there was some nefarious activity and those, those votes would be turned around somehow and he would no longer, I mean, just go back to what everybody was saying a year ago. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit crazed. And none of that has come to pass. But we do have an investigation. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows what's happening. Uh, folks sometimes, I guess, get details that maybe shouldn't be made public from whatever sources, I don't know. But the fact is that we are fully cooperating as a White House, and the President's attorneys, his personal attorneys, have said that he is fully cooperating. He's also said he's, he looks forward to it um, coming to an end, but in the meantime, we're cooperating. There's inherent risk, though, for anybody in, in talking to the FBI uh, and, and recounting some of these details, and especially if you're the President of the United States, where a lot has happened. Uh, and to be able to recall all of that, he, he doesn't know what other people have been telling uh, Mueller in their interviews with him. I mean, is there not any concern at all about, you know, whether he could be caught up somehow unintentionally saying something that's not true? Well, again, you're asking me questions that are really for his counsel, yeah. not his counselor. Okay. His counselor is very happy that I wake up every morning and see more Americans benefit directly from legislation. And, and to be frank with you, Phil, I just think in the, the span of one short month, I don't understand why. I, someone can ask um, former Speaker Pelosi when she's here, but I don't understand why the Democrats voted against in mass a tax cut that is literally benefiting their constituents now. And I don't know why then they voted to shut the government down. I mean, those are the kinds of things I work on. I don't understand it. Maybe someone will ask. I don't know what the strategy is other than just saying resist, obstruct, hold a stop sign up when you have a president who's saying, I want to work across the aisle with you on immigration. I want to work with you on infrastructure, another big piece of the President's State of the Union tomorrow where he will talk about, re he's a builder, he wants to rebuild this nation, but you do that in a bipartisan fashion. Yeah. You do that by saying roads and bridges and our infrastructure, our technologies, every these are the fact that we don't make anything anymore, or build anything as a country uh, like that, a major big public works project, that is, that is bipartisan. Um, the air traffic control system was designed for a time when we had roughly 100,000 passengers a year. We now yeah. have close to 1 billion. I don't know what is partisan about that. But the idea that, that the president will commit to investing at least $1 trillion in infrastructure and bring the permitting process down from 8 to 10 years to about 2. You see other countries that do this. You get to comment publicly. You can criticize the proposal, but you don't have 10 or 20 years to do it. And, I, and we'll get to the Democrats in just a second, but I want to pin up one thing uh, on Russia before we change topics, which is that uh, reports over the weekend, first in the New York Times, but confirmed by The Post and Fox and others, uh, are that President Trump ordered Don McGahn, the White House counsel, to, uh, to fire Mueller as the special counsel back. Uh, last summer in June, and you are a number of a number of White House officials said that he had never contemplated that, including you, on August 6th. And I'm wondering how uh, we should make sense of that um, when the president talks about firing Mueller. Is that an order? Is that a directive? Is that him talking? Uh, what what do we make of that? And how do we um, how do we how do we square everything? There? So that's never been discussed with me, is what I was yeah. trying to say on TV, and it certainly has never been discussed since. 
um, I believe Mr. Cobb has said publicly, the president's personal attorney, mm -hmm. that's never been discussed since he's been there. You have to look at his exact quote. And that's what I was saying. He had just gotten the job. I think he and General Kelly arrived pretty much around the same day or same week. So as Ty says, it may have been missed that he got there too. Uh, but in any event, that has never been, uh, I, I'm not aware of those discussions. But I am, I would like to point out that when interviews like that are played, or when you show the president many times saying, I've not thought of doing that, I'm not doing that, it's never used to refute the allegations in the news. It's always used to show, wow, look at that, that must not have been true. Yeah. And, uh, and by the way, the Washington Post reporting was a bit different. I read both articles. It was a bit different than the New York Times reporting um, in terms of there were a couple of keystrokes different there, so people will have to assess which one they think is, is more spot on if either. But um, <clears throat> as I've said, the main point is Mr. Mueller is there. He is investigating. He's been doing that since May. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're now into, we're practically in February. The White House is fully cooperating. And uh, we respect the process. Okay. Uh, well, I want to talk a little bit about the midterms coming up. Um, one of the roles you play is, is helping the president sort of think through the political strategy. You were his campaign manager of the winning campaign. And we're going to hear next from Nancy Pelosi, who I think uh, would like to take back the House and feels quite bullish that the Democrats are going to be able to do that. And so my question for you is, uh, what are the odds that Democrats can take back the House? And what, what do you and, and what does your party need to do? in the next 10 months or so to prevent that from happening? Sure. Well, Phil, I think that uh, obstruct, resist, hold up a stop sign, Donald Trump's bad, we're not Donald Trump, is, is a strategy, is a campaign strategy that failed in 2016. And so it's not necessarily the best strategy for any election. At the same time, we are well aware of the historical trends. We are well aware that the party in power, particularly in the White House power, do suffer grievous losses in off-year elections and first midterm elections. President Bill Clinton certainly did in 1994. I worked on the contract with America at the time. Speaker Gingrich came in, historic gains in the House and Senate at that time. And uh, the same thing happened to President Obama, of course, in 2010. So both of those gentlemen, President Clinton and President Obama, suffered losses um, in, the, in the House and Senate, but then were successfully reelected. What I think is different this time, two things I'll think is different. So eyes are wide open about the historical trends. Mm -hmm. One thing that's different is if you look at 1994 and you really look at 2010, which I think we can all remember, uh, is that at that point, people were trying to run, they were trying to justify their vote for the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, at a time when people were getting nervous about it. They were worried about keeping their health care. They were worried about actually being able to keep their doctor or keep their plan, which they were promised and wasn't true. They were worried about the loss of benefits, loss of jobs, loss of hours. Um, and, then, and then, of course, the reduction in quality access. They started to hear more about it. It took a lot longer to pass the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, than was originally planned. And so you had members, Democratic members in the House who had voted for it, then trying to defend that vote. Uh, this is different this year because the centerpiece of the domestic agenda was this tax cut. So the Republicans who voted for, I assume, I don't advise them on this, but I assume will be out there saying, I voted for a tax cut that now means Apple is, is bringing 20,000 jobs to the U.S., is repatriating trillions, excuse me, billions of dollars of wealth. Uh, look at the 274 companies and counting that have made direct investments because of the tax cut I, Republican member X, voted for. And that is benefiting members in my 
in, in my particular state. So I saw recently the generic ballot had been cut in half in a couple of these polls from plus 12 Democratic to plus 6 Democratic. That'll go back and forth over time. It always does. But I, I think that knowing what the headwinds are for the party in power is when you think mm -hmm. about how these members will run on something, defending something, or crowing about something, really bragging about something that they think benefits their constituents, and the, the metrics would say they're right. That plus the regulatory framework having been improved, you see, um, you see everybody from the franchisees to small business formation to larger employers to job seekers feeling very bullish. The confidence numbers are up, the unemployment is down, and that matters for something. Those metrics end up mattering to folks. Manufacturing confidence being up, 200,000 new manufacturing jobs are so created. Um, that, those are all big numbers. People know their 401ks are fatter, their retirement security, the 529 education investments having been expanded through the tax bill, uh, being able to responsibly develop our own energy resources in Alaska, which had been attempted for 40 years. So there are different things people will see over time um, that, that will be helpful. The other thing that is a wild card. Two things I think are a wild card, frankly. One is the continuing retirements. I said this yeah. um, to Axios several weeks ago. Continue today. Continue today. We had retirement of another um, House Republican chairman of the Appropriations mm -hmm. Committee, Mr. Uh, Frelinghuysen from New Jersey, retire. So no one knows where these retirements will end. There, there seem to be an awful lot of them. So that's one thing. The other thing is everybody knows about the October surprise, which just seems to me in this very fraught environment. Um, where <clears throat> there, there could be sort of election day surprises for people. Um, folks are being called out right, left, and center for their behavior, their terrible behavior, and allegations of behavior, and worse than behavior, um, by uh, current and former employees and, and staffers and whatnot. So in I think parties. that's a, in both yeah. parties, and I think that's a wild card that we can't, nobody can really anticipate and predict this time. That, that gets to what I w wanted to ask you about next, which is um, what is your assessment of the Me Too movement, and what sort of impact do you think uh, this will have 10 months from now politically? Uh, the Democrats seem to think it will work in their favor and, and result in more and more women voters turning against this president and against the Republican Party to elect Democrats to office, but I, I assume you might have a different view of that. And, and what do you make of, of that movement and its political power? Well, anytime people who feel like they are powerless or an inferior to a superior who is treating them uh, poorly, particularly, I guess, in, certainly in this case, in a sexual way, um, that's a very positive thing. I've been talking about it for years. I've been treated that way myself. I tried to talk about it on live TV on October 9th. Uh, 2016, but nobody really cared because of um, who my candidate was. But I've been treated that way. I, I, I do want to say something that anytime somebody can speak up, male or female, about these, the way they've been treated, I think that's very positive. Um, I believe in due process. I believe in people feeling they have a voice and, and not being powerless. But let me just correct because I think you're conflating a few things there. The Me Too yeah. movement uh, started after you had uh, this. Um, just a slew of allegations, uh, revelations about Harvey Weinstein, right. for example. I'd have to say that it seems to me that was the centerpiece of it at the beginning. And so I don't want to conflate uh, two, three, five different things into one question and one answer. Um, at the same time, <clears throat> I think we have to have a larger conversation about uh, the workplace environment. And it does seem to me that the Me Too movement cannot be based on a woman's political beliefs or where she works, or who she is, or whether she's in media, or Hollywood, or s professional sports, 
or she's a conservative. Uh, it simply can't happen. I don't feel comfortable explaining to my three daughters and my son, frankly, that it all depends on who the victim is and where she works or what she wears or what her politics are. That would really be a terrible, terrible message to send, particularly to our youth. And so I hope we just have a larger conversation about respect and the workplace and the workforce. Um, but so far, I don't see that. So far, I see, I mean, if, you, if, if the women in this room want to tell me that they want their daughters or they themselves want to be treated the way uh, some of the women at the White House are treated, I'm listening, but I highly doubt it. Okay, well, well said. Um, we've got, we're um, out of time. I one more thing to yeah. the women who have ever been on the receiving end of that as I have. I'm 51 years old, so I, I've definitely been on the receiving, when I was younger and prettier, as I like to say. Maybe that happened to me. <laughs> Uh, but what I want to tell you in a very serious note is, ladies, if you're listening, every single time that happened to me, I was afraid, I was ashamed, like it was my fault, even though it clearly wasn't. But I never, ever looked at those men. I don't want you to look at those men as powerful and intimidating. I want you to see who th them for who they are. They're weak and pathetic. So don't say you can't report it, nobody will listen, because they're powerful and intimidating. They are weak and pathetic to do that, to prey upon someone who's in a position um, th where that person feels they can't speak up or defend themselves. And that is a message I'd like to send to everyone. Well, thank you, Kellyanne. Um, to the not weak or pathetic, um, <laughs> to the powerful and intimidating Phil Rucker. Thank, thank you. you for having and me. I just want to get one thing on the record as we walk out, which is the Super Bowls this Sunday. Uh, your Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles are taking on. Yes, you know me, I love an underdog. Yeah, so the <laughs> so. Eagles are up against uh, the New England Patriots. President Trump, a big Patriots fan, are you going to watch the game with him? And well, President what Trump, like me, has a great deal of respect for um, Mr. Bob Kraft, who owns the Patriots. He's, he's a wonderful human being, a great American success story. We were very happy to have the Patriots at the White House in 2017, but there's no reason they need to come back again. We, we can, <laughs> it's the people's house, and the more Americans who can visit, the better, especially if they're wearing green and white. Now I'm being a partisan. Now you got me getting an ethics violation for, I don't know, for say, promoting the Philadelphia we'll Eagles. But um, lifelong Eagles fan, very excited, and uh, I just feel whoever wrote the story that Nick Foles is all of us now is right. When you, just when you think your career is over and you're going to try something new, you get called back up and, and great things happen. But it's, it's, I think of the Super Bowl as a really uh, great night. And I, I have to say that um, it's one that brings Americas together. We all eat a little too much. We stay up a little too late. And it's one of those fun times. And go Big Green. Go Eagles. Well, Counselor Kellyanne Conway, thank, thank you. you very much for being right. here. And, uh, we're going to hand things off now. Uh, yeah. Karen Tumulty, our, our national political correspondent, is going to be interviewing Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic House leader. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.